And here are some international Easter traditions and customs that I ran across to this week. In Belgium, people will be busy hiding their loved one's shoes. In Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, young people will slosh water on village girls. Outside the cathedral in Florence, Italy, the people will set ablaze a cart full of fireworks. Scandinavians will bring out their special seasonal Easter beer. And here's my favorite. Brazil, by far, has the best Easter tradition. Every year across their country, straw renditions of Judas are constructed. Locals then proceed to punch, kick, and set ablaze the man who, burned, uh, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's a cool tradition. But what about America? Eggs. Easter bunnies. Decorating Easter eggs. Dressing up. One author said this, A bewildering mixture of ancient faith and folklore, of Christianity and paganism, of holiness and horseplay. And somewhere in the middle of all that, is the truth of a cross, an empty tomb, and a resurrection. And so if we can do one thing this morning, I'd like to separate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the other traditions of Easter. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the cornerstone of all Christian truth. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. We're going to look at that passage. We're also going to look at Acts chapter 2, and then again a little bit more in Luke 24. And if you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen, but also if you don't have a Bible of your own before you leave, please take one as a gift from grace to us. And here's the prayer, and here's the goal this morning, is to take an event that happened 2,000 years ago to ask the Lord by His Spirit to take us back 2,000 years and to bring that to the present reality of our lives this morning. But we definitely need the Spirit's help and work to do that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, what a privilege it is, and a humbling thing, to speak this morning about the resurrection. God, thank you for Seth and the worship team for the folks in the sound room, for the greeters, for Charlene in the children's rooms. God, so many things that you are doing this morning already to encourage us, to remind us. God, thank you for the fellowship when we walk in through a high five or a hug of encouragement. And now, God, we come to the part of the service where we open your word and we ask that by your spirit you would teach us in all wisdom and truth. But, God, not just for information of a rehearsed story. God, we ask that by your spirit you would use the information to bring about transformation. To make us in the likeness of Jesus. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you that they will hear from the Lord this morning and respond.
in Jesus' name. Amen. For context, the Passover celebration had come and gone. The Sabbath was over. Life in Jerusalem was starting to return to normal. The week before, the the leaders had incited a riot among the crowd to, to scream out, Crucify Him, meaning crucify Jesus. But now things are quiet again. And maybe the religious rulers and the Pharisees are thinking, that's behind us. And they're kind of laughing, thinking we got rid of him. Now the attention can come back to us. There was some heaviness in the hearts of several women who got up early that first Easter morning. Remember, Jesus' body had been quickly removed from the cross and didn't have time to have a proper burial. So the first day of the week, the sun um, had risen, the women had made their way to the tomb, only days before they were at the foot of the cross, mourning. In their eyes, when Jesus breathed his last, the light of their hope was sniffed out. And while they were hurried to the tomb, wondering how in the world they were going to roll this stone away, God had a surprise waiting for them. And so we pray, too, that God, in his way, would surprise us this morning. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb And we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linens lying there, but he did not go in. So Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come to the tomb first also entered, and he saw and believed. Three questions that I want to ask us this morning to think about is this. The first one is, is it real? Is this whole resurrection story real? And if it's real, what's been accomplished by it? And then what is our... Now what response to it? The reality of the resurrection. You and I deal with discerning reality every day. Discerning what is true and real or discerning what is made up or exaggerated. Uh, This is true in fishing stories. It's true when people come back from playing golf. It's also true about our government, speeches we hear, politicians, news channels from Fox News to CNN and MSNBC all report the same event. And sometimes we walk and go, which one really happened? You know, what's even funny is that there's even a group of people called fact checkers. I'm surprised and amazed that we even have to have such a group. Fact checkers. But the same thing, the same process is true for some people when they come face-to-face with the resurrection. Is it real? Did it really happen? 
What's interesting is that the first sermon ever spoken after the resurrection was by a guy by the name of Peter. And it was about the resurrection. And as you follow the life of the church throughout the book of Acts, the resurrection is the theme. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the resurrection. In chapter 4, he preaches it again. In chapter 10, he preaches it again. In chapter 7, Stephen preaches the resurrection. In chapter 8, Philip preaches the resurrection. Chapters 9, 13, and so forth. On through chapter 28 of Acts, Paul picks it up and preaches the resurrection. In fact, the whole New Testament has a resurrection theme. In Romans, Christ is raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. In 1 Corinthians, He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians, He who raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also. In Galatians, by Christ Jesus and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. In Ephesians, Christ was raised from the dead. In Philippians, that I may know Him in the power of the resurrections. In Colossians, it is God who raised Him from the dead. Thessalonians, His Son whom He raised from the dead. Then Peter picks it up again. He has begotten us to a living hope. How? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Over and over. And what's amazing is the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, Jesus himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. I am he that was dead and am alive forevermore and I have the keys of hell and death. From his resurrection till now, it's about the resurrection. Different writers, different times, same message, he is risen. Now Peter, in his first message, we can pick it up in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Listen to how he starts. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over, the, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now there have always been people to deny the resurrection. They denied it in Jesus' time. They deny it even today. And maybe some of you here have a denial or a skepticism about this story and kind of think, is it really real? If that's you, you're welcome here. And you're welcome to think that. But I want to ask you to ask yourself this question. Why do you think that? Is it because in some way you don't think God is powerful enough? Or the story is just too far-fetched and doesn't have much significance in my life. Peter affirms that it happened in real, actual history. Now, theologians and skeptics, as well as common people, have denied the resurrection. Here's some of the things you'll hear. Some have said, well, he rose because he never really died. In fact, the vinegar that they gave him kind of put him in a coma. And then he went to sleep for a few days, and then he woke up. And some have said the disciples believed it so hard that they, they hallucinated about it. It was just an imaginative thing in their mind. And some supposedly well-educated theologians have said, yes, 
he did rise, but he rose not in normal history, not in human history, but in spiritual history beyond space and time. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Peter puts to rest all this type of thinking and focus, focuses on the historical facts of the resurrection. And he starts in verse 22 with something really simple. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man. They couldn't deny that. They knew Jesus had lived. They knew that Jesus has a real name and a real place. Specifically identifying who he was. He was a man, not a phantom, not just some kind of influencer. He wasn't this like floating spirit. Peter starts out and says, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man. And they go, yeah. Peter went further, verse 22, attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. He says, this was a real man, and while he was in your midst, you saw him do miracles, wonders, and signs. Three words. The miracle describes what Jesus did. The wonder is how you responded to the miracle. And the sign describes who it was all about. His all-powerful God, Father. A man with real miracles and wonders. You know this individual, Peter's saying. You know all about him. You saw the display of his life in your midst. He's real. What he's done is real. And then he kind of gives him one of these kind of things. In verse 23, and you nailed him to a cross. By the hands of godless men, you put him to death. So not only were you eyewitnesses, you were also his executioner. This is history. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead. If he was a real man, he did real miracles, you crucified him, and you agree with all that that's real, then you have to agree with this statement. God raised him from the dead. It really happened. Another aspect of this is that you never see in the New Testament, among the Gospels, the writers of the Bible argue that the resurrection never happened. None of the Gospels try to explain the resurrection. In fact, the resurrection is what explains the Gospels. Later on, Paul went further with the Corinthians in chapter 15 and said this, He was buried. He rose again the third day. He was seen by Peter, one of the twelve. Then five hundred brethren. Then he was seen by James. Then by all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me. So notice Peter's sermon his argument he was a man we agree he did miracles yeah we saw it you put him to death yeah we did god raised him from the dead yeah 500 other people saw him it's all real Jesus is a real person who lived a real life in a real place in front of real eyewitnesses who died a real death with real pain and came out of the grave with just a real resurrection. 
And so we have to ask ourselves, if it is real, what did it accomplish? The results of the resurrection. You and I also live in a culture, not only do we discern what is real and what is not real, we also live in a culture of cause and effect. An if-then type thing. If there's an action or a word spoken, then there's a response. I'll give you some examples. If the price of oil goes up, then the prices of gas goes. If I have money in the stock market and the stock market goes up, so does my money. But if the stock market goes down, so does my money. If someone cuts me off on 278, There's generally a response to that as well. <laughs> Cause and effect. If this, then this. The same concept can be understood with the reality of the resurrection. If the resurrection is real, which we have determined that it is, what did it accomplish? I want to share with you three things that it accomplished. These are only three broad strokes. The first one is this. Verse 24 shows us that death was conquered. But God raised him again. That's the cause. What's the effect? Putting an end to the agony of death. There was a battle. Jesus versus death. And Jesus won the battle. Verse 24, it was impossible it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Jesus conquered death. Do you, do you know what it means for us that death is conquered? For the believer, it means that to die is only beginning of new life. The grave is not an ending, it's a beginning. And because of that, Paul writes this, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about, just for a minute, what if there was no resurrection? Sometimes we understand more about what we have in its absence. And so think about, just for a minute, what if there was no resurrection? Here's a little bit of a list. The first one is the gospel is useless. Forgiveness, good news, redemption, done away with. Our faith is empty. The apostles are liars and they die in vain. Sin's power is unbroken. We are still Mastered by sin, if there's no resurrection. The dead are damned and separated from God forever, if there's no resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, Paul tells us that Christians are the world's most pitiful people. But now Christ has been risen, Paul says. And because he lives, the result is this, you shall live also. There's a second result, that Christ is exalted. Listen to Acts 32 and 33. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we all were witnesses, 
therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God. When Jesus came out of the grave and returned back to heaven, he was seated by the right hand of God. Hebrews 1 says God placed him at his right hand. Philippians 2 says God gave him a name which is above every name, what we just sang about, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. That when God raised, had raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians chapter 1, he gave him a place far above all principalities, and powers and dominions. Even then, we have to say, so what? So what if it's real? So what if he's conquered death? So what? Jesus is the one to whom the angels bow, to whom the demons and Satan fall powerless, the one who every creature in the universe will one day bow before. And think about this. If Jesus is still in the tomb, Satan wins and still is on the throne. But God has placed him above all authorities. And so practically speaking today, it doesn't matter who's in the White House or what world leaders are trying, we're trying to conquer or, or what world leaders are trying to conquer us. None of them have conquered death. And so Jesus is still king of all. And so it begs the question for us individually, is Jesus exalted in your heart as a place of authority? Death was conquered, Christ is exalted, and finally, number three, the Holy Spirit and his work was commissioned. Verse 33 says this, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Another result of the resurrection is that the Spirit could be poured out. Remember in John chapter 7, it says that the Spirit can't come while Jesus is here. Jesus has to go, and then the Spirit comes. And if there's no resurrection, we don't have the Spirit. And for you and I to live out the Christian life, we have to have the Spirit of Christ living in us. And so Peter is rejoicing of the reality of the resurrection, the results of the re resurrection, and he ends his message... In verse 36, with like this thunderous declaration, Therefore, because of all that, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Powerful sermon. So what? Or now what? If the resurrection is real, if there are results from the resurrection, what is our response to all that? There are two things that happen in life. There is a stimulus and there is a response. Here's some examples. If you're hungry, stimulus, the response is what? I'm going to go eat. Some of you, I can hear your stomachs growling from up here. <laughs> when you're cold, stimulus, what do you do? Put on a sweater, grab a blanket. If your child gets hurt, Stimulus. You go comfort them. Here's one that might resonate better. Husbands, when your wife tells you to do something, <laughs> stimulus. Long time sometimes before there's a response. <laughs> well, the same can be true with the resurrection. After hearing and knowing that Jesus being beaten and tortured, 
killed and comes back to life. That's the stimulus. What's our response? Someone has said that the time between stimulus and response is what we really believe about God. And I believe when we face this story, when we hear the reality and the results, there has to be a follow-up to it. A response is required, almost demanded. And I have found in my own life that no response is a response. So what are the options of responding to the resurrection? I think there's two responses and basically two types of people in the world. Those who have responded to Jesus as Lord and Savior and those who have not. For those who have never trusted Christ as their Savior, who are not believers, the response is simple. Trust Christ. You might be sitting here saying, Matthew, I have heard this story this resurrection story, and I believe it happened. I believe those results, victory over death, Christ exalted, Holy Spirit coming, I believe all that. But let me tell you, it doesn't mean anything unless you respond to it, unless you make his story your story. Unless you have been brought from death into life. Back to Peter's sermon when he's talking to these men of Israel They say to him in verse 37, their response. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart. And Peter said, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? How should we respond? Why did they say that? What brought that out in them? Well, I think they recognized, number one, they knew they had sin in their lives. Peter said, you killed Jesus. But there's a second thing. They they knew he had risen from the dead. That God was powerful and Jesus was alive. And here's the third thing. They wanted his mercy and forgiveness, not his wrath. And so they said, tell us, how do I respond? Does that describe you? Peter says to them, verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think one of the the greatest offerings and direct response options that you have comes from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. And it says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's the response. It's the most important response. Also in light of response, I want to go back just for a minute to John chapter 20. This whole resurrection story is an invitation. And I illustrate it by verse 1 of chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, and while it was still dark, and she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. 
As we read the resurrection account, particularly about this guarded grave, this huge stone over the entrance, you begin asking yourselves, what is significant about it being rolled away? Remember, Matthew's gospel tells us that guards were set to make sure it was secured and sealed and nobody come to it. So the stone being rolled away as the ladies get there in the morning is significant. But why did all the gospel accounts record that very, very important detail? Why would God decide to include this detail of the stone being rolled away of the grave? Now, some of you thinking, well, Matthew, duh. It's like he had to come out. (laughs) But then you start thinking, well, this same Jesus that we're going to roll the stone for, didn't he walk on water? Didn't he feed 5,000 people with a boy's lunch? Didn't he catch a bunch of fish in one setting? Didn't he cast out demons? Didn't he command the winds and waves? Do we really think with that historical background that Jesus needed the stone moved out of the grave so he could come out? I'm convinced the stone was rolled away that morning so the visitors could go in. The stone rolled away was not the means of his exit. It was the means of our entrance so that we could see it for ourselves. Notice, too, the responses. In verse 5, it tells us that Peter, uh, John ran in uh, to the front of the tomb, didn't go in, and he saw the linen cloths there. This word saw in verse 5 is the word blepo, which means just to kind of glance at it real fast. Just to kind of get a quick glance, a quick peek. And maybe that's why you're here this morning. It's Easter, it's what I do, I'm getting a quick peek, and I'm going to run out. Verse 6, it says Peter comes in, and he saw the same thing. But this word that he uses here is the word theorio, where we get the word theater. So Peter comes in and looks a little bit longer. He's, he's figuring out the characters and the plot and the story, like a theater. Maybe you're here this morning trying to look at it, trying to figure out the plot, how this fits in your life. But then it says, John ran on in, in verse 8, and he saw, and the word saw there is orao, which means to see and believe. And so this morning, I ask you, how do you see the empty tomb? Are you just here to glance at it? Are you just trying to hear, just kind of figure it out, the story? Or is God asking you this morning to see and believe? Glimpses and observations may be okay for a season. Knowledge can only satisfy for so long. Peace and joy and fulfillment will only come after we believe. And to believe carries with it the understanding that not only you consent to its truth, but you live out of its realities. Many people miss the meaning and purpose of life because they're looking for it in the wrong places. And some of you here this morning could tell us stories about that, of your own life. It reminds me of what the angel said to the women who came to the tomb in Luke chapter 24, verses 4 through 8. While they were perplexed about all that they had been going on, behold, two men suddenly stood, stood near them, dazzling in dazzling clothing. 
And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. What a question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? It leads us to ask ourselves two questions this morning. Are you looking for the right thing? And are you looking in the right place? The right thing to look for, the only right thing to look for, is engaging our lives with the living God. Practically speaking, if I wake up in the morning and the first thing I reach for is my phone, anybody guilty? Instead of God's Word, then I get halfway through the day and think, why does my life feel kind of like off? Like maybe it was because we were looking for the living among the dead. Or maybe it was what Jesus talked about for the Pharisees, that he called them whitewashed tombs. Everything was pretty on the outside, but they were missing it on the inside. They were dead on the inside, and sometimes we're the same way. We, we want to fill up our lives with things on the outside through what we accumulate or, or how we perform. And fulfillment doesn't come from the outside, it comes from the inside. All those things on the outside is looking for the living among the dead. God is a God of hope because God is the one who makes dead things alive. I want to close with this. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And our response to the resurrection changes everything about us. Let me pray for us. God, we think this morning if Jesus did not conquer death and come out of the tomb, he would be no different than any other person that has ever lived. But we know for certainty that the resurrection is real, that the resurrection has incredible results. And God, I pray that you find us this morning responding to the truth of the resurrection. And God, I pray for anyone here this morning that has never surrendered their lives to you. God, I pray this morning they would move from just glancing at this story or even just questioning the story to believing the story for themselves, that your story would be their story. That's why you came. That they would understand the cross was the bridge between a sinful man and a holy God. And that the tomb that is empty is our victory that seals us for all eternity. God, by your Spirit, this morning, move in the hearts of people and do the work that only you can do. We can do all we can with music, with explanations, moving any obstacles that we can out of the way, but it's only your work in the hearts of people that makes a difference. And so we trust you with that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.